I thought you were going to say if you don't sign up, you'll get the pink flamingos. <laughs> that could be arranged. <laughs> well, I'm going to be out of town all week, so you don't put them in my yard. <laughs> this has been a great week for us, the Eastages. As you know, we went to Atlanta on Sunday, and Nancy graduated from Emory University on Monday morning. Then yesterday, we went to Kingsport, where my granddaughter graduated from Dobbins-Bennett High School. Also last week, Nancy's daughter, Hannah, graduated from Druid Hills High School. So we're academically oriented these days. <laughs> I was telling someone a while ago, I have a son at Milligan. I have a grandson at Virginia Tech. I have a granddaughter at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. My granddaughter who graduated yesterday is going to Maryville College. And then Hannah, Nancy's daughter, is going to Carson Newman. So we, we're touching them all. No two go to the same one. Don't y'all work? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, when I graduated from seminary, I graduated in March, and they didn't have March exercises. Everyone came back in June to receive their diploma. I was so glad to get out. I wasn't about to drive all the way back to Atlanta. I said, mail it to me. Then I didn't get to go through all the pomp and circumstance. Now, when my son, Wesley, graduated from medical school, they allowed me to have the prayer in the graduation exercises. They asked me for my academic credentials, and uh, I gave it to them. And they failed to provide the proper ones. So as we got in the academic procession, they said, well, wait here just a moment. We'll get you something. And they came back with a PhD hood. <laughs> so I think that makes me a PhD. <laughs> I marched down the aisle, sat on the podium, gave the prayer in a PhD hood. Now, I don't know what qualifies you more than that. <laughs> but anyway, it allowed me vicariously to get my diploma out of graduation exercise because these two were from the School of Theology. Well, today we're going to talk about heaven. Everybody talks about heaven, ain't no good get there. That's, that's the old song, isn't it? Well, you get there if you want to, and that's the good news. We are winding up our study on Revelation. We have one next week. And today we're through all of the plagues, all of the hard times, and John is giving us a vision of what lies ahead for those who have been faithful to Christ in his time and in all time. It's interesting that when he begins today's lesson, John says that one of the angels, one of the seven angels that had the canister of terrible events to take place came to him and said, look, I want to show you something. Now, this is one who was instrumental in the plagues that came upon humanity, but he changes his persona and he becomes the bearer of good news. And uh, 
He says, I want to show you something. Look. And he looked, and there was the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. John said it was as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, in a moment, we'll look at some of the descriptions of heaven as John reveals them. But first, we need to take notice of the fact that John is Jewish, born a Jew, reared a Jew, worshipped as a Jew, became a follower of Christ, but Christianity didn't remove itself from the Jewish religion. That wasn't to come until most of the adherents to the Christian faith were Gentiles. Prior to that, the Jews went to the temple, they went to the synagogue, and then they had their services as Christians as well. So John is steeped in Jewish theology, Jewish history, and Jewish heritage. So much of what he describes comes out of the environment of the Jewish faith. We talked earlier about the fact that the 12 tribes of Israel are repeatedly represented in the figurative way in which John talks about the events of heaven, God, and those who surround the throne. He says that the new Jerusalem is descending from heaven and is the bride of Christ. Now, we don't think in terms of Jerusalem. We as Christians, we have no reason to think about Jerusalem, but the Jews did. That was the holy city. Jerusalem was the very heart of the Jewish faith. Interestingly enough, Jerusalem had no role in the history of the Hebrew people until David became king in the year 1000. And he brought together the 12 tribes of Israel into one kingdom. When the children of Israel came into the Holy Land, the land was divided up into 12 portions, each portion for one of the individual tribes of Israel. There was one portion of land that was so heavily fortified, nobody was willing to attack the inhabitants there, and they could get along well without it. So there was one small piece of land there in the heart of all the others, Jerusalem, owned by the Jebusites, occupied by the Jebusites, and no one took any effort at all to try to claim that city or that territory. Who wants it? Who needs it? We've got all we want. When David brought the 12 tribes together, he was an extremely wise man. He said, if I put the, the kingdom, if I put the capital in the southern kingdom, the northern tribes will be resentful. If I put it in the northern kingdom, the southern tribes will be resentful. Now here's a piece of land that lies between the two. It doesn't belong to either the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. So David went against the Jebusites, attacked the land, took it, and made it the city of Jerusalem, 
which played well in the years to come because it was heavily fortified, falling away on three sides so that no one could have a sneak attack on the city. And then they could fortify themselves against anyone who would be coming. So in the year 1000, David took the land known as Jerusalem and made it the capital of the kingdom, of the United Kingdom. Twelve tribes to the north, two to the south. This held sway. He wanted to build a temple there. Now there was the tabernacle that God had instructed Moses while they were in the wilderness, while he was on Mount Sinai. God said, I want to be with you. I want you to build a place that I can occupy so that I can be with you in the wilderness and in the land that you are to accept as the promised land. And this is the only building in history that was designed by God because God told Moses exactly how to go about it. Build it of acacia wood overlaid with gold, two seraphim over the top that whose wings overlapped and covered the entire top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was to be placed inside of the tabernacle. And the Ark of the Covenant would be the habitation place for God on earth. It was to be in a place called the Holy of Holies into which no one could go, no one under any circumstances who could go except on Yom Kippur, which is the celebration of atonement. When the high priest can go in and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people, and in all other times, no one can approach it. It's the holy of holies. This was at the heart of the tabernacle. David brought the tabernacle with him to Jerusalem. The holy of holies was inside. Everything was in place now for a kingdom of God on earth. David wanted more than just a tabernacle that had been designed out in the wilderness to be carried around from place to place. He wanted a temple that was appropriate to house the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. He went to the pinnacle of Jerusalem, Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, which had a history because it was on Mount Moriah that Abraham had taken his son, Isaac, to offer as a sacrifice. And so it was a holy place, ready-made. God said to him, I don't want you to build the temple. David had displeased God in ways in which God was not allowing him to build the temple. On David's death, Solomon became king. Solomon wanted that temple to be built. God blessed his efforts. And so in 950, Solomon began the building of that magnificent Solomon's temple, built of granite, overlaid with gold and silver, with cedars brought in from Lebanon. It was to be worthy of the Holy of Holies. It would be the sacred place of Israel. It became the sacred place. God's here inside in the Ark of the Covenant. 
the temple from the moment of its being built by Solomon until 60 AD or 68 AD when it was destroyed by the Romans. It was the one rallying point for the entire Hebrew nation. Great things took place at the temple. When Jesus was born, his parents took him to the temple to be circumcised. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was taken to the temple to be have his entry into manhood established. And during the course of his lifetime, he went to the temple as a place for worship. The last week of his life, he revered the temple in such a way as he drove the money changers out and said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. It was a holy place for Jesus as well. It had had a hard time from the time in which it had been built until the time that it was destroyed in 68 AD. In 662, Josiah, who was king of Judah, the two had separated by now. This was a southern kingdom. Josiah, the king of Judah, saw that the temple had been abused foreign gods had been brought in in disrepair and so he established the reforms of refurbishing the temple restoring the temple and in the process of that they found the book of Deuteronomy which became the foundation of the law by which the Jews would later live played a very important role in the establishment of the law in 586 the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, tore down the walls, destroyed the temple, took away all of the artifacts, and the Ark of the Covenant disappeared. No one knows from that moment to the present where the Ark of the Covenant might be, what residue of the Ark, if it's not in its entirety. There are fables about one in North Africa, but there's no evidence that any of these are actual arcs of the covenant but the temple was rebuilt in 541 when the children of Israel came out of exile after 70 years in exile they came back and they rebuilt the temple that was their instruction the first thing you are to do is to rebuild the temple this is where they fell out with the Samaritans because the Samaritans had not been taken off into captivity. The Samaritans were the remnants of the northern kingdom that had intermarried with other races. They wanted to be a part of the rebuilding of the temple. Those Jews who returned said, we don't want you to have anything to do with the temple. You are not true Jews. So there was a great controversy there for a period of time. So much so, in fact, that it was only 515 before the temple was finished. And then it was nothing like the original because they didn't have the resources. They didn't have the wealth with which to do it, but they did have the temple. In 322, Alexander the Great conquered Jerusalem. He was going in and he was going to tear down the temple. The prophets of Israel got to Alexander the Great and said, don't you know that there is prophecy in the Bible about you overtaking Jerusalem and that you became a supporter of the temple? Alexander the Great was so moved with the fact that he was a part of God's prophecy that he left the temple alone. And so it survived that time. 
But in 175 AD, the Syrians came in, overtook Jerusalem. Now, from the time of their coming of exile, the Jews have not owned their city. They have been had overlords of various nations. But in 175, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, a Syrian ruler, came in with one primary purpose, to destroy Judaism. He did everything he could to destroy Judaism. He went into the temple. He replaced the altar with an altar to Zeus. He took a hog, a pig, which is the worst animal on earth to the Jew, and he offered it as a sacrifice on the altar inside the temple, which was an insult to every Jew. Two years later, a Maccabean came into the temple to worship, and he saw a Jew being forced by one of the soldiers there to bow down and worship the God that they had put in place. The Maccabean became so angry that he, seeing that this Jew was willing to bow down to a false god, he killed the person who was worshiping and he killed the soldier himself. And then he gathered his family together, the Maccabean brothers, and they decided that the time was come to get rid of Antiochus Epiphanes, restore the temple to the Hebrew people. And so the Maccabean Wars began. Ten years later, 165 AD, the Jews reclaimed the temple. They cleansed it of everything that the uh, foreign countries had done. And that is the celebration of Hanukkah that the Jews celebrate today was the cleanse of the temple after they had taken it back from the Syrians. And then there for about 100 years or less, the Jews occupied Jerusalem, and they had possession of it. In 63 AD, the Romans overwhelmed Palestine, took Jerusalem, and they held Jerusalem all up to the time of the birth of Christ, up until the time in which it was destroyed in 60 AD. So this is the history of the city, and John doesn't want to turn loose of all of that. It's a magnificent story, and he equates heaven with the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Now, the Jews have always felt that the descendant of David would sit upon the throne and restore Judaism to its greatness. But about 200 A.D., they came to realize that there was no way that they could overwhelm the Romans. And so they began to talk in terms of the time to come. This would be a great day when God would intervene with a Messiah. It would be a supernatural event, not a war that would be fought. It would be a supernatural event, and the Jews then would reclaim the city, and they would be restored to their greatness. It was in that concept that John was thinking when he said, the new Jerusalem is here, and this time it is the bride of Christ. He has talked about the bride of Christ last week and equating it to the uh, followers of Jesus, the Christians, 
and the Jews who have remained faithful. And so the bride of Christ is the new Jerusalem. But there's no temple. The temple has played the primary role in the Hebrew nation in holding the people together. It was the place in which God lived. But Jesus said, God does not live in a house. God is spirit. And those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. So with the coming of the Messiah, with the coming of grace and not law, not sacrifice, which the temple epitomized, the keeping of the law, the offering of sacrifices, no longer needed. So the temple is not mentioned in the new heaven. It's a new Jerusalem. John wants us to know that this is not just a spiritual place, but it is a concrete place. So he says an angel appears with a golden rule and he measures the new Jerusalem. 1,500 miles cubic. 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles high. Interestingly, the Ark of the Covenant was a cube. Not nearly as large, of course, very miniature. But John was thinking in terms of the Ark of the Covenant. He was thinking in terms of a cube. Heaven is a cube, 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long. There are walls that encompass the city, which John's way of saying it is a particular place. It has boundaries. It has 12 gates. Each gate is a single pearl. We talk about the pearly gates. Well, John told us that they're made of pearls, 12 of them, three on either side. And each of the 12 gates is one of the tribes of Israel. There's an angel guarding each gate. But the foundation of every gate represents the 12 disciples. Once again, John integrates the 12 tribes of Israel with the 12 apostles, saying that the two are no longer separated, the two are one. And then he describes the city itself. I don't know any way that the city could be described there would be any greater than the analogies that John uses. Pearls, diamonds, rubies, all of the stones that are very rare and beautiful and valuable. Streets, gold. Wordsworth wrote a poem, Flower in the Crannied Wall. He said, Flower in the Crannied Wall I pluck you from the wall. I hold you in my hand, roots and all, all in all. If I could understand you, flower taken from the credit wall, I would know what God and man is. I threw that in to say, if I were describing heaven, I'd be talking about Ben Sharfstein's beautiful home place when you drive up the driveway with that magnificent rhododendron on the side and the flowers all about. That's my thoughts of beauty. But they didn't have that kind of flowering beauty in Palestine. It was sandy land, rocky land, but they did appreciate the beauty of precious jewels. And the most precious of all jewels 
was the pearl, the pearl of great price. And so the gates that opened up were gates of pearl. But the gates were never closed. By now, all evil was gone. There's no evil to come into the city. Only that which is good will enter the city. And there's no need to close the door against anyone because Jerusalem now is the open city for all because heaven has come. But then there's more. There's a beautiful stream that runs down from the throne down to the middle of the golden street. And it is a crystal clear stream. Is there anything more restful, more peaceful, more beautiful than a crystal clear mountain stream? When I was in college, a group of friends and I climbed to the top of the chimneys. Now, those of you who've been to the chimneys say, what, that, what is it to climb that? That's easy to do because it's a paved walkway that you can easily get there. Well, I came out of the dark ages. There was no path leading to the top, hand over hand, root over root. When we got to the top, I was totally de-energized in every sense of the word. Thirsty? I could have drunk anything. We took chocolate milk. Boy, was I a pioneer. Chocolate milk on a hike? That just intensified your thirst. When we came down off, here was a beautiful stream coming out of the mountains. We just bent over and pushed our faces into that water and just drank and drank and drank and drank. I can still remember how great it tasted. Beautiful, clear water. Can't do that now. It's polluted. Back in the dark ages, it was pure as it could be. It flows out of heaven, and on either side there are the trees for the healing of the nations. The magnificent scene that is often described at funerals as to the place that God has prepared for us. In words that John can find that best express totality and ultimate beauty, peace, and love. Any comments or questions on today's lesson? That's right, it's in Hollywood. <laughs> There's been a lot of stories about that. I just wondered if any of it was even partially true or anything. Well, tradition says that Jeremiah, when he was taken to Egypt, took the Ark of the Covenant from the temple, hid it in a cave on the mountain to be retrieved when they came out of exile. He died before they came out of exile. Another tradition is that uh, when the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon, they had a tryst, and out of that tryst there was born a son. That son kept in touch with his father. When his father's kingdom became troubled, he took the Ark of the Covenant to Egypt for safekeeping. In time, it became the possession of a group of Egyptian or Ethiopian Jews, and their church holds it in their possession now. They claim to have it. They won't show it to anybody, so we have no way of knowing. But they claim that they have it. So there are theories about where it might be. My opinion is it was destroyed 
by the Babylonians when they destroyed everything else. Why would they not have destroyed it? Unless it had been removed in advance. <laughs>